Well, good morning, friends. It's lovely to be back with you here uh, in Hamilton on a late summer Sunday morning. And you are continuing in your studies in John's Gospel, and it's a privilege for me to take you through John chapter 9 this morning. It's a long reading, actually. It's, a, well, 41 verses worth, but we're going to read it all. And uh, please follow with me in your Bible or on your Bible, we have to say these days. You're probably looking at a screen. John chapter 9 and verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the disciples, sorry, therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said he's of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man's a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? 
Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple? We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man weren't from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard them say this and said, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. <clears throat> now you will have noticed as you've worked your way through John's gospel that it's structured like a great orchestral symphony. It begins with an overture, as all great symphonies do. We call that the prologue to John's gospel. And you have it in chapter 1 in the first 14 verses. In those 14 verses, all the great themes that John is going to expand on right through his great magnus opus, John's Gospel, uh, are, are contained in embryonic form. Until John works these themes right through to the very end and gets to the great crescendo of his movement in chapter 20 and verse 31, where he tells us that he's written all of these things in a carefully constructed way for one purpose and one purpose only. And that purpose, that great purpose of John's gospel, is that we who read his account of the life and times of Jesus Christ will read them and come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing in him, we will have life in his name and come to know him as our Savior. That is the sole purpose for which John's gospel was written. And we're not speculating. John tells us that. So almost everything we find in John's gospel is a development of the themes that he has introduced in those first 14 verses in that overture, in that prologue. And nowhere is that more obvious than in chapter 9, our passage this morning, where John continues to work out one of those great themes in the prologue, that Jesus is the light of the world. One of the other great themes is Jesus' life-giving. Life and light, two great themes in John's Gospel. And here, in chapter 9, we have the idea of Jesus as the light of the world expanded. And when John tells us that Jesus is the light of the world, he means 
us to understand that in two ways. Firstly, Jesus is the creator of the world. The one who in the beginning, as we've heard already with the children this morning, said, let there be light. <coughs> and there was light. But secondly, not only is Jesus the creator of the world, he is also the re-creator of a world that has fallen into darkness. So we see here at the beginning of chapter, and we see, so those at the beginning of chapter 8 who recognize him as the light of the world will have the light of life and no longer walk in darkness. That theme's already been introduced at the beginning of the previous chapter. And they will have the whole of their lives, if they follow him, illuminated by his saving grace and his wonderful presence. So Jesus is the light of the world. However, John tells us that as the light of the world comes into the world, it exposes the darkness with the consequence that the darkness is always struggling against the light and constantly trying to put it out. When the New International Version in chapter 1 of John's Gospel says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness hasn't understood it, in all likelihood, that word understood should probably be translated, the darkness has not been able to extinguish it. It has not been able to overcome it. It's not been able to blow it out. In the one other instance, the phrase is used in John's Gospel, that's exactly how it's translated and understood. So from the very beginning of the Gospel, that prologue, Jesus, the light of the world, shines in the darkness, but the darkness has an opposite reaction and is consistently and constantly trying to extinguish the light that has come in to the world. And so a great conflict is being set up by Jesus' ministry in which, as the light of the world, he arouses the darkness in the form of the hostility of the Jewish people. And they are plotting against the scenes to destroy him, behind the scenes to destroy him. Now, we already know, and you'll have seen last week or the week before, whenever you dealt with the whole of chapter 8, which is quite a long chapter, maybe you did it in a one or I'm not sure, but you'll know from chapter 8 that the, the Jewish leaders want to destroy Jesus. You've established that already. Last week, you would have seen a great conflict where Jesus accuses them of being children of the devil, effectively, which is very inflammatory language. They want to destroy Jesus because when that light shines, the darkness always extinct, wants to extinguish the light. Keep that in your mind. And that's the theme that's taken up again here by John in chapter 9. Here, he recounts the marvelous miracle of a man born blind who is enabled to see again by the Lord Jesus. And Jesus demonstrates by this one act what John calls a sign, how the kingdom of God works. And what the consequences of the kingdom of God are in the life of an individual. Now that's why it's so significant for John that this was a man who was born blind. The, the number of times that is emphasized in the text cannot be accidental. Because it's a perfect illustration of people like us in our natural spiritual condition. We are born spiritually blind. And Jesus is the one who dispels from our lives the spiritual darkness and spiritual gloom and enables us to see him and the purposes of God in true 
clarity, in glorious technicolor and in 3D. So here in the life of one simple man, it's almost as though the whole story of John's gospel and indeed the whole story of the gospel is encapsulated in a wonderful narrative. There are three stages in this narrative and I want to unpack them with you this morning. Firstly, we have the blind man's encounter with Jesus. Then we have the blind man's investigation by the Pharisees. And then we have the blind man's coming to faith. So let's think firstly in these opening 12 verses about the blind man's encounter with Jesus. Now it looks from the way in which John tells the story that it took place reasonably soon after the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was the pretty feast in Jerusalem. It was the one like Hanukkah, the one just before Christmas, where all the lights are lit and the, 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 the court of the women was, was in the temple was lit with great flaming torches that illuminated the whole of Jerusalem. And there is still in the recent memory of Jesus' hearers here that great festival of light. And in chapter 6, of, uh, sorry, verse 6 of this chapter, John once, uh, Jesus once again uh, declares himself to be the light of the world. Now there are three things that John sees as significant in the encounter of this blind man with Jesus. Firstly, I want you to notice with me the day on which this took place. John notes very carefully in verse 14. The day on which Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Now that's obviously immensely significant for John and it's immensely significant for the whole story, as we'll see. It was Jesus' healing of a man on the Sabbath day before in John's gospel that had aroused such controversy and generated real hostility against him. This great controversy about what you could and couldn't do on the holy day for Jews was right at the center of Jesus' confrontations with the Pharisees. And you would have thought that given that Jesus had already run into a bit of Sabbath day trouble, Sabbath day gate, he might have, he might have just thought, I'll wait till tomorrow. I mean, the guy's been blind all his life, right? One more day isn't going to make much of a difference, is it? You know, if you just left it till the next day, you could have avoided all this trouble, all this controversy. The man would still have been healed. Everything would be hunky-dory. No more conflict, no more hassle. Everything's fine. So don't you think it's remarkable that Jesus deliberately goes out of his way to heal this man on a Sabbath? He's trying to do something significant here, do you see? Could have waited another day. What difference would it have made? None. Let's do it on the Sabbath because there's a big point to be made here. And the issue was this. Here was the big point. Was the Sabbath, which in many ways encapsulated the whole of Jewish law, was the Sabbath made in order to restrict people, to harm people, to control people, or was the Sabbath made for the freedom of God's people to love and worship him and enjoy healing and wholeness and joy? Well, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? You know the answer to that question. The answer is the latter. Although when I grew up on Sundays, which was always called the Sabbath in my house in Les Mayego many years ago, uh, there wasn't much joy, freedom, and wholeness experience then. No pokey hat, no 
Play Park, no ice cream. It's a Sunday. These men who gathered around Jesus in hostility were proud Pharisees who despised the ministry of Jesus. But Jesus stood tall and strong and insisted on this occasion that he would do the healing of the blind man as a great demonstration of the kind of God who made a Sabbath and who gave a Sabbath to his people to show legalists the kind of God that God really is. And as we so see, this becomes an event of immense significance because in, in one sense, friends, there, there, there is one sense in which John's gospel tells us that Jesus was crucified because of what he did on Sabbaths. It was this controversy that ultimately led to his death. And so the day is significant, as John points out in verse 14. Jesus is making a big theological point here. That God intended this day, this special day of rest, to be one of wholeness, of completeness, of wellness. And you've turned it into a day where you measure the distance that your hand moves to do a job. The second thing of significance in this section is the conversation about the man's condition. So the day is significant and the conversation is significant. And we see this right at the beginning of the chapter, a significant conversation. The disciples ask Jesus a question when they see this blind man. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now you can see the way they're thinking here. They look at a blind man and they conclude that there must be one of two, only two possible explanations. Either this man sinned, presumably in the womb before he was born, or his parents sinned. The rationale being that sin leads to suffering. This man is suffering, so this man or his parents must have sinned, Right? Now, before we're too hard on these people, I just want you to take a rain check here on your own thinking. I remember 11 years ago when my wife developed stage 3C breast cancer, asking the question, why? What have we done here to deserve this? Now, I was a relatively mature Christian back then. But that's a question that comes quickly to our minds, isn't it? We know that, that, that bad things that happen, that pain and suffering are, are the consequences of sin. So we, we default in our minds to this kind of crazy place where we think, well, I, I must have done something really bad here if this is happening to me, right? That's exactly the thinking of the disciples here. And it's a very human and fallen way of thinking, a very natural way of thinking. It's a natural reaction because of what we know about sin and its consequences. So the bigger the consequences and the harder the suffering, the greater the sin must be somewhere, surely. But it's interesting to notice what Jesus does with their question. He responds by saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, Jesus isn't saying that this man or his parents weren't sinners. What he's saying is that there wasn't a direct cause-effect from specific sin X to specific 
condition Y. His parents were sinners. The man was a sinner. But what Jesus is saying is this. This man's blindness is not attributable to either his prenatal sin or his parents' sin. Jesus looks at the man's blindness from an entirely different perspective. He says, let's not puzzle about the questions that would explain how this man became blind. Let's answer this other question. What can God do about this man's blindness? He's saying to the disciples, you can spend all your life puzzling over questions like that. The why question. But it will make not one iota worth a difference to the blind man, even if you could answer it. What good would it be to him, even if you managed to get some kind of resolution on that? Even if that were the case, what use would that be to the blind man? The question that needs to be asked here is, what is God's purpose in the man's blindness? And that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 3. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now I want to just make a pastoral application at this point. You may be facing some heinous thing. It might be an illness. And you may be asking the question, what have I done or what... what What reason is there that this has happened? Friends, can I say to you lovingly and graciously and from my own personal family experience, this happened. This happened. So that the work of God might be displayed in your life. Maybe a work that God wants to do in your life. Maybe a work that he wants to do in your family's life, as he did in mine. Maybe a work that he's been wanting to do for a long time, but he hasn't been able to get your attention. Who knows? This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, this is an insightful window window into the the way in which our Lord Jesus teaches us to think about all, all kinds of difficulties and disabilities. Not to answer a question that is unanswerable. But to answer the question that is answerable. What does God want to do here? What blessing does God want to bring through this situation? And you see, in many ways, that is the crucial difference in the attitude to suffering between the Christian and the secular humanist. Richard Dawkins is probably the great example of the secular humanist in our own age. Many of you will know his name. He's the author of the book, The Blind Watchmaker. Now, if you were to ask Richard Dawkins this question about the blind man, Professor Dawkins will say, well, I can tell you how the man became blind. I can tell you what's not working in his eyes. But to say, what is the purpose here for Richard Dawkins isn't even a question. There is no purpose It's blind chance. There is no greater reason. The secular humanist says, I can tell you scientifically what's happened to your child. What disability they may have, what is wrong with them, etc. But forget about the answer to the question why. And don't you see, friends, that's where Jesus comes in. 
Jesus says, let's not bother about the question, is this child in this condition because of his sin, his parents' sin? That's not the issue. The issue is, how can God be glorified in this situation? That's the issue. Because that issue and the answer to that issue will have eternal consequences. Some of you will, <clears throat> will be familiar with the name <coughs> Joni Erickson Tada. She's been a quadriplegic since she was 17. She dived into a swimming pool that wasn't as deep as she thought. In an interview recently, she was asked what the most helpful literature was that she'd read in those early days. And when I heard what book it was that she'd found most helpful, I had to do a double take. Because this is a book that some of you may have heard of, but many of you won't have. And even if you have, your jaw will be dropping right now. The book she identified as being the most helpful book for her in the early years of her quadriplegia was, wait for it, Lorraine Bretner's book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. What? What? You may be asking yourself, why would such a book help such a girl? Because the core thesis of that book is this. There is always a divine purpose. God has not lost control of his universe. What else have we got if we lose that, friends? God is sovereign and sovereignly in control. Always. God is good all the time. And on that basis, let us know and understand and proceed to ask the questions in what way does God mean to glorify himself through this situation, through your situation? Given the basic thesis that he's not lost control and he hasn't lost the plot and he's still in control and he's still in charge, if he's still in control and still in charge, he's in control of whatever it is that's facing you right now. Yeah? The big question is, can you trust him with that? And it was asking that question that eventually transformed this man's life. So the day is significant, the conversation's significant, and Jesus' action is significant. The things he told the man to do was significant. Now, remember, the man was blind. So Jesus gives him sensory things to do. Or he, he deals with them in a sensory way, do you notice? He bring, brings, brings together two things. First thing, he makes mud with his spittle from the dust of the earth, and he anoints the man's eyes. <laughs> now, Jesus is acting out creation here. Do you see? Every good Jewish boy knew that in the creation narrative, God made man from the dust of the earth. And so what Jesus does here is he, he recreates creation. And he uses the divine spittle mingled with the dust of the earth just as he did in creation to recreate this man's sight. So he's enacting the creation story in front of this Jewish man, do you see? And that would not have been lost on that Jewish man. Every good Jewish boy knew that. And then, secondly, 
Jesus tells him to go and wash his eyes in a very specific place. Do you notice that John says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam? And then John tells us, then John tells us, so we see the significance of the pool of Siloam in this narrative, that the pool of Siloam means sent. 17 times at least in John's gospel, Jesus is described as the one who is sent from the Father. And in sending this man to the pool called Sent, there's a lot of senty stuff going on. And Jesus is communicating to the man through the mud and through the location that he is the creator and the sent one. Do you see? He's the one who's sent from God. These two things are telling the man in auditory and physical ways who Jesus is. They're prompting him along his journey of understanding the identity of the Savior, and we'll see that unveiling coming to a conclusion at the end of the story. These actions are intended to communicate to the man that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who has worked this glorious recreation in his life. And in a sense, it's an acted out parable of what Jesus has already been teaching Nicodemus in chapter 3. Unless you are born from above, unless you experience a new creation, a new birth that comes from God, you'll never see the kingdom of God. So in this wonderful story, do you see, the whole Christian gospel is encapsulated in this blind man's encounter with Jesus. But there's a dark side that takes up the central section of this story. The blind man has encountered Jesus, is then investigated by the Pharisees. And that takes place from verse 13 right through to verse 34. And here John's picking up that theme from the prologue again. The darkness seeks to extinguish the light. And in John's gospel, from around chapter 5 through chapter 6 into chapter 7, and you've seen last week in chapter 8, as we've already said, those ways in which that darkness is, is emerging like a great like a great shadow over the life of Jesus. And here we see the proud way in which these Pharisees go about their business. First of all, by interrogating the blind man. And you'll notice, actually, that, that even themselves, amongst themselves, they were divided. Some were saying, this man certainly can't be from God. And others were saying, this man, well, he might, we don't know where he's from. Because if he were a sinner, he couldn't do these things. But the, the big issue for the Pharisees is this. Here's the, here's the problem for the Pharisees, and it's a problem for us as well at times. The Pharisees had in their mind what the French call lide fixe, a fixed mindset. They had in their ideas a fixed idea from which they're beginning about Jesus. And as long as that idea is fixed in their mind... That will be the lens through which they will see everything else Jesus says and does. Right? We might call it a preconceived idea. Or a lens through which we see things. And their lens was, Jesus, this man here, he's destroying the Sabbath. They made up their mind about that. And he had to go. He had to be destroyed. Or the Sabbath would be destroyed. It was Jesus or it was the Sabbath. And as long as that basic idea in their mind remained unchallenged, they were not able to see beyond it. 
Now I want to ask you this morning, friends, what basic misunderstanding about the Lord Jesus Christ might you be carrying in your mind? What's your lide fix about Jesus? Well, he's, he's a good man. That's a fixed idea. You won't see him as a saviour if that's your fixed idea. He wants to destroy my fun. He wants to limit me. He wants to constrain me in some way. He wants to control me in some way. What is your fixed idea about Jesus? Through which you see everything else when you hear his name and through which you see everything else when you hear his word. <clears throat> and it clouds and distorts the truth about him. Because you've already made up your mind. It's like a little speck in your eye that you just keep rubbing and rubbing and rubbing and rubbing until eventually your eye becomes so swollen and dysfunctional that you can't see anymore. These Pharisees regarded themselves as the guardians of orthodoxy, the guardians of God's law, that, that speck of dust in their eye. And, and they, they didn't understand the scriptures and they developed this view that nobody should heal a man who is in need on the Sabbath day. What kind of God did they have who saw the Sabbath day as a day of restriction and to allow people to continue in suffering when a hundred things that you couldn't do and all that stuff about measuring your hand distance when you were washing the dishes. Oh, don't wash them either. That was a bad thing to do as well. So on it goes and on it goes and on it goes. And as they kept rubbing and rubbing and rubbing and rubbing, that little speck of dust in their eyes eventually became so irritated that they couldn't see who Jesus was, even though he was standing in front of them. What a tragedy. And so they deal with the blind man. They, 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 he can see. Nobody's doubting that. But they refuse to believe it. Clearly he wasn't blind in the first place. So they get on the case of his parents and his parents are terrified because there's a wee hint here that there was a wee bit of chat in the family home about the fact that Jesus might be the Messiah. But they're not going to let the Pharisees see that because they'll get kicked out of the synagogue. So they say, well, we don't want to get involved in this. We, he's our son. He was blind. He can see. We don't know any more than that. Go and ask him yourself. He's a big boy. The Pharisees are left with this conundrum. He can see and he was born blind and it infuriates them because they will not see Jesus as who he is. So they summon the man again in verse 24. Can I, they summon the man again in verse 24 and then they, 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 they interrogate him in verse 26 and they, they insult him in verse 28 and, and finally in verse 34 they excommunicate him. They throw him out. The language is really brutal, isn't it? They threw him out. An interesting point here in the story is that Jesus has entirely disappeared. There's no sign of Jesus here. It looks as though all this antagonism is focused on the blind man. They're mad with the blind man because he says, Jesus has blessed me and I can see. But what they're saying is, Jesus can't possibly have blessed you. Do you see, it's Jesus they're after all the time. The man's a casualty in this. And there's something else to notice in that sequence of events. The process they go through with the blind man, they summoned him, they questioned him, they insulted him, and they threw him out. It's an exact parallel, friends. It's a dress rehearsal of what they'll do with Jesus in three or four in, in, in chapters 18 and 19. They're learning their lines with this poor man of what they will do with Jesus himself. 
They'll interrogate him. They'll summon him. They'll interrogate him. They'll insult him. And they'll throw him out to the Romans to crucify him. Their opening gambit to the blind man's fascinating, isn't it? In verse 24, look there. A second time they summoned him and they said, look, give glory to God here. Give glory to God. Under the guise of being passionately concerned with the glory of God, they seek to intimidate this poor man and bring him to a position where he might deny the Lord Jesus who's done such wonderful things for him because they don't realize that to give glory to God is to honor Jesus for who he is. That's what it means to give glory to God. And that speck of dust, you see, they're rubbing it, they're rubbing it, they're rubbing it. They keep on rubbing it. And they reach this tragic position where they can't see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he's standing right in front of them. And the great paradox is this in this chapter. It's a blind man who sees Jesus, and those who say they can see, see nothing at all. But we close with something that's far better and far brighter. Look at the beautiful words of verse 35. And notice the difference between the way in which Jesus stiffens his back against the Pharisees and resists them and how he bends his back towards this poor man. He's been thrown out. And look at, the, look at these words in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, isn't that wonderful? When he found him. Do you feel the tenderness of Jesus there? Jesus heard they'd thrown him out and he went to find him. He'd been excommunicated from the Jewish community now. He'd been thrown out the synagogue, thrown out the community. And Jesus goes to find him. And that's a living example of what Jesus had already said in his teaching in Chapter 6, whoever comes to me, what does he say? I will never cast out. Jesus isn't the business of excommunicating and casting people out. Come to me, he says, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. I'll never turn you away. I'll never cast you out. And notice how Jesus gently draws this man to a position of full and believing faith. Did you notice how he begins in verse 11 by saying that it was a man called Jesus who had healed him? And then under interrogation in verse 17, he says, he's a prophet. <clears throat> and then there's that hint in the family home that we mentioned earlier about maybe they're talking about him being the Christ, but didn't want to go fully public on it as a family because of fear. But then can you see him moving on in his understanding step by step until in verse 38, Jesus reveals himself to the man as the son of man, that great figure in Jewish history from Daniel 7, who would be the savior of sinners and the judge of the world. And the man says when Jesus explained who the son of man was, tell me who he is that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, it's me, it's me the one who is speaking with you. And look at the man's reaction. Look at the man's reaction. Because he can't just see physically now. 
But here in this moment, you can see spiritually. Lord, I believe. I see it. I see you. And all of this, all of this, friends, is a picture of the gospel and how it works. There's no mention of the man's name. That's interesting. We know about blind Bartimaeus, but we don't know this man's name. And John's deliberate there because this is every man and every woman and every young person. This is every person's need. We're born with spiritual blindness. We need the touch of Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit to enable us to see who he is. We need the touch of his power on our lives to experience what Paul calls the new creation in Jesus Christ. And when our eyes are opened, like this man's, what fills our horizon? The Lord Jesus himself. We see him in all his glory. We see him for who he is. And we worship him like the man did, and we want to live our lives for him because of who he is and because of what he's done for us. And so this man fulfills the promise in the prologue. To those who receive him, to them he gives the right to become the children of God. Those who were born not of the will of man or of the flesh, but born of God. So that we can say with the blind man, we've seen his glory. And this is the great testimony of every Christian here this morning. Once I was blind, but now I can see. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives sight to blind men and women like us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this glorious story and for all it has to teach us today. May, by your grace and through your spirit, You open the eyes of our hearts that we may see the Lord Jesus as our Saviour and live live for him in acknowledging his Lordship in our lives. For your glory we pray in his name.